This past week was the convocation for the diocese that we are a part of, the Diocese of St. Anthony. Um, I wasn't planning on this. This is, this is a pastoral note. Are you all in a place where you can receive a, a pastoral note today? Um, this is not a, a, a criticism or a judgment. This is, this is an invitation. When we have ordination services, show up. Show up. For a couple of reasons. One, uh, it, it is good to, to honor the work that these individuals do. To, I mean, it, it takes some t- in some cases years to go through this process of formation that leads to ordination. So it's good to come and to honor them and show them that respect. But we show them that kind of honor because these people are serving you. These people who are moving into ordination, they're not doing this to ascend. This isn't a kind of promotion. They do this to serve you as the body of Christ. And not only because we should honor them and not just because we should respect this call on their life for them to serve you and to serve us, but because you have a voice in that ordination service. There's a moment in that service when the bishop says to the congregation, to you, is it your will that these should be ordained as deacons, that these people should have hands laid on them and they become deacons? And the response, hopefully, is we will or we do. This is what we want. But we can't make that affirmation heard if our voices aren't in the room. So we have a number of uh, people who are moving through this process now and their, their ordinations are out on the horizon. And let me just encourage you, when we talk about it, when we announce those things, show up. Show up, because it matters. These people are following the call of God on their lives. Again, not to ascend, not as a promotion. They're hearing God's call to serve our community, to serve you all. So let's show up. Amen? I'm gonna read a weird text to you. It's from Sirach. I know, say that with me, Sirach. This is, uh, this is one of those strange apocryphal texts that, that doesn't really show up in our uh, Protestant Bible, but it is in the lectionary because it shows up in, in other people's Bibles, like Catholic Bibles. Uh, and, and so this is a text that we still, we still honor it. We, we don't, it's not included in our canon of scripture, but it essentially just falls out of use over time throughout the church's history, right? So some of these books and uh, these deuterocanonical texts and, and things like the Apocrypha, um, they're older than some of the texts that, that we appeal to. And one of the reasons we stop reading them is just because we just aren't that interested in them, right? But I do think they have a a word for us, and so I wanna read to you out of Sirach 15. This is uh, one of our lectionary texts for today. Uh, Today's gonna be weird, okay? I just, I gotta preface. Are are we okay with some some weird today? (laughs) This is gonna be weird. Oh, man. Lord, help us. If you choose, you can keep the commandments, and to act faithfully is a matter of your own choice. 
He has placed before you, God has placed before you fire and water. Stretch out your hand for whichever you choose. Before each person are life and death. This is an echo of our verse from Deuteronomy for today. Before each person are life and death. And whichever one chooses will be given. For great is the wisdom of the Lord. He is mighty in power and sees everything. His eyes are on those who fear him and he knows every human action. He has not commanded anyone to be wicked and he has not given anyone permission to sin. Hard words from Jesus today. And it turns out that it's the thought that counts. We're used to hearing something like this. Oh, it's the thought that counts, right? It's usually after some kind of failed attempt at doing something sweet or heartfelt, something meaningful, something, something special, and we failed to do it well, and so in response, we usually hear, oh, it's the thought that counts. We're, we use this as a kind of gentle diss, right? Like, yeah, you should be a little embarrassed, but don't be too embarrassed. You poor thing, you're so sweet. It's the thought that counts. We use it primarily with children. Our oldest daughter, Nora, she likes to give me notes and pictures that she's, that she's written or drawn. And most of the time, <laughs> they're actually good. Like her pictures are good and her notes are sweet and heartfelt. But every once in a while, she gives me one of those pictures that's like half colored you know, parents, you know what I'm talking about, or a note that like kind of rambles off and she's like, well, I didn't really finish it, but I wanted to give it to you anyway. And you just go, oh, well, it's, it's the thought that counts, right? This is what we hear from Jesus today, that what matters in the end is not what you do, but what's in your heart. It seems like the opposite of what we so often say at Sanctuary, right? This is part of why today is going to be weird because what we say so often is that we are more than brains on a stick, right? Our friend Jamie Smith tells us this, that we are more than brains on a stick. We are more than just thinking beings. We are embodied creatures. We are more than just what we think and more than what we believe. We are embodied. We are called to live out what it is that we believe. This is the kind of thing you hear us say all the time, right? But what Jesus suggests in today's gospel reading is that God is not primarily concerned with what you do, with obeying God's law in the way that scribes and Pharisees have thought. What matters in some mystical way is our intention. Mystical is a word that you're going to hear a lot today because like I said, it's going to be weird. So buckle up. What Jesus suggests is that God's most intense judgment isn't based on what we have done or left undone as we confess every week, but that God will judge us on what we intended to do, what we hoped to do what we wanted and desired to do. Before you go on feeling like you're off the hook, here's the bad news. Have you looked in your own heart lately? 
Most of us try to avoid paying too much attention to the state of our hearts, to our intentions, to our thoughts, let alone try to do something about the state of our hearts. Why? Because it turns out it's a lot easier to control our actions than it is to control our hearts. It's a lot easier to act good than to be motivated and animated from a place of goodness. Most of us, hopefully all of us up to this point at least, with all of our moral struggles, we've managed to avoid committing murder. Not because we haven't felt like we could kill somebody, (laughs) but because it's easier to control our actions than to control our hearts. But how many of us avoid anger? How many of us avoid accusation or gospel? How many of us have souls that are free of jealousy or prejudice or pettiness? Listen, my wife and I have a saying around our house, and it is, petty has a name, and it's spelled P-A-U-L. I can be petty, like petty, petty. We, uh, in preparation for these ordinations, one of the the things that happened to (laughs) our deacons is uh, Father Chris sent them a sermon that uh, he wanted them to listen to. And in the sermon, this woman says, tells this whole story about don't let your diaconate get in the way of your priesthood, right? Which is a way of saying, as you process through, through holy orders and some of these deacons will become priests and some of these priests will become bishops, remember at the foundation, you're, you're deacons, And the diaconate, being a deacon, forms all of your ministry. And to be a deacon is to be one who serves, which is to say that all of ministry is about service, right? And so there's this beautiful line in this this sermon where she says, don't let your diaconate get in the way of your priesthood. So fast forward to Tuesday morning, first morning of the convocation, there are some things that need to happen in the room and a number of, not our deacons, our deacons are wonderful, but some of the deacons who uh, are here from around the country were out enjoying their donuts and their coffee in our new little gathering area. And Father Chris and I, maybe the Lord is telling me, don't tell the story on myself. Father Chris and I are wheeling tables down the hallway and moving stacks of chairs. And we've been doing this for about 20 minutes. And finally, our last trip down the hallway, one of the deacons goes, hey, do you guys need a hand with that? And we said, oh, we got it. You know, this is our last one. And one of the newly ordained deacons says to us, yeah, don't let the diaconate get in the way of your priesthood. And over my shoulder, I said, and don't let your donut get in the way of your diaconate, and just kept right on walking. Petty has a name, and it's spelled P-A-U-L. It seems that even when we want to be free of these kinds of things, they are firmly lodged in our hearts, whether we act like it or not. So yes, what matters is what is in our hearts. It is the thought that counts, is what Jesus is telling us today. But it turns out that what is in our hearts can be pretty ugly. It can feel very much out of our control. 
The reason this matters is because we understand on a fundamental level the corrupting nature of sin. Evil in our lives is by very definition nothingness. Evil isn't a thing so much as a paling, a a lessening of the good, right? So evil doesn't necessarily exist so much as evil just takes away the goodness until there's nothing left. It, it's the same as, you know, there's no such thing as cold. It's just, just the absence of heat. Evil is the same kind of thing. And the point is that evil in our lives, sin in our lives, is at the root of our failure to live as God imagines, to live as God would have us live. But we end up in these kinds of strange conundrums, right? Is it our heart that's corrupting our bodies? Is it our bodies corrupting our hearts? Augustine argues it is what is in our souls, what is in our hearts, not in our bodies, that is the root of our failure. In fact, Augustine criticized those Greek philosophers who said it was the body that corrupted the soul, and he said the opposite is true. He says this, quote, it was not the corruptible flesh that made the soul sinful, but the sinful soul that made the flesh corruptive. It is our souls. It is what is in our hearts that turns us in on ourselves that turns our affections away from God and towards ourself, our own selfish interests, towards our own passions. Frederick Bauerschmidt, he says that it is the soul that turns us from God, the source of all life, and toward ourselves. It is the soul and its passions that lead the body into acts of anger and lust, that lead our hands to steal, our ears to listen gladly to gossip, our mouths to speak lies or words of cruelty. We are embodied creatures, no doubt about it. The way that we live and move and exist in the world, the way that we treat our neighbor, all of that matters. But it's not enough to present an outward appearance of goodness. That's the business of the scribes and the Pharisees, to pray loudly in the streets, but privately speak to our children with a harsh word. What we need is to possess a goodness that goes all the way down, to drink of God's goodness all the way to the bottom. And the question we're faced with over and over again is will you choose life or will you choose death? That's the invitation of the text today. Our text from Sirach actually says that he has placed before you fire and water, life and death. And we think that the response is simply, which will you choose? Obviously, we want to choose life. Of course, we want to choose water and not fire. We want to choose that thing that quenches and not the thing that scolds. But the mystics, I told you we're going to use this word, the mystics from a number of different traditions, they teach us that this choice is not so easy. And oftentimes, the choice isn't really up to us at all. Are we ready to get weird? 
The mystics show us that this choice is really a paradox, that we, we can't live without water, but we can't live well without fire. Both fire and water can be dangerous if they're not handled well, if they're not treated with care and caution, or if they come to us in ways that we can't handle. That is what the mystics know and what we have to learn, that even in our choice of life and death, fire and water, the capital M mystery holds together opposites. In one of these mystical traditions, much like the sayings of the Desert Fathers, which we've shared before, we find this discourse. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Question, what was your vision of God's pre presence? What was your vision of God's presence? This is the answer this mystic gives. I haven't seen anything, but for the sake of conversation, I'll tell you a story. God's presence is there in front of me a fire on the left, a lovely stream of water on the right. One group walks toward the fire, into the fire. Another toward the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which are not. Whoever walks into the fire suddenly appears in the stream. A head goes under on the water's surface. The head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire, and so they end up in it. Those who love water, of the water of pleasure, and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further, he says. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire, I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. We're in the weirdness now. You should wish to have a hundred thousand sets of moth wings so you can burn away one set a night. The moth sees light and goes into fire. You should see fire and go toward light. Fire is what of God is world consuming. Water is world protecting. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have, now what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. What is the wisdom here? The wisdom is that whether we choose life or we choose death, whether we choose fire or we choose water, we are only ever choosing what God has placed in front of us. Those things God offers us. And whether we choose life or we choose death, we are always kept in the light and the life of Christ. Even if we choose life, we can't not die. It is appointed to man that everyone should die. God does not keep us from dying, but God does save us from death. I'm gonna say that again because Father Chris told me to. God does not keep us from dying, but he does save us from death. God does save us from living in bondage to the fear of death. How? By joining us to Jesus. 
in his death. We are baptized into the fire of Christ's own life through the waters of baptism. It gets weirder. Listen to this from the sayings of the Desert Fathers. We've shared this before, but man, it's so good. Abelot went to Abba Joseph, and he said to him, Abba, as far as I can, I say my little office, I fast a little, I pray and I meditate, I live in peace, and as far as I can, I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? <laughs> then the old man stood up and stretched out his hands towards heaven. His fingers became like 10 lamps of fire, and he said to him, if you will, you can become all flame. <laughs> what? You understand what's happening in this story. The old man's hands were on fire. What does that mean? I don't know. But what I think we ought to hear is that there are parts of us, parts of our hearts that are not who we are meant to be. And until we allow that to be burned away, and the fire of God's love for us, we will never be who we were meant to be, which is the light of the world. You can be all flame, Abba Joseph tells us. You are the light of the world, Jesus tells us. And part of the trick here is realizing that what we understand as the destructive, damning fire of judgment is really the purifying and perfecting fire of God's love. We need that fire in order to be made who we were meant to be. Both fire and water. Remember, fire alone won't do it. God has set before you water and fire. The two, it turns out, are inseparable. Are we doing okay? Hopefully this helps us a little bit. This is Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. Sounds a lot like fire and water. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but you are led astray to bow down to other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish you shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess. Here the people of God are given a choice. One leads to life, one leads to perishing from the promised land. Do you choose life or do you choose death? One leads to a land of promise, the other leads you astray. But listen, listen to the psalmist. This is Psalm 66. You, talking to God, brought us into the net. You, God, laid burdens on our backs. You let people, our enemies, ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, yet you have brought us out to a spacious place. 
Another translation says, you have set my feet in a broad place. It turns out it's not possible to separate the fire of our lives from the water of our lives. What the mystics teach us, what Christ's own life teaches us, is that in some way the fire and the water are one. They are mingled together in every part of our life. The fire of our lives, the difficulty, the judgment, the burning, painful parts of our lives can't be separated from the water of our baptism. Think about it this way. Without water, we can't grow wheat. Without fire, we can't bake the bread. And every week, Christ comes to us in this mingling of fire and water in the bread of the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Moses sees this kind of fire. Moses sees the fire that burns but doesn't consume when he approaches the bush. And that fire, it is burning, but it's not consuming, it's illuminating. And then on the mountain, he goes up into that fire, and now he is the one who is illuminated. But Moses sees water too. Moses sees the water turned to blood, you remember. Moses sees the Red Sea waters destroying the armies of Pharaoh. Those things that we imagined were for destruction became his illumination. Those things that we think are gonna bring us life, sometimes they bring about the death of armies. Here's the point. We think our choices are the choices that are bringing us life or bringing us death. We think of them as the, the sting of flame or the relief of water. But in Christ, all these things only ever do us good. There is no avoiding the fire. You may choose the water and then find yourself in the fire. There's no avoiding it. One way or another, we have to step into it, but it's not the fire of judgment. It is the fire of God's love burning away the dross. And the way you can tell the difference, Origen says, is that the fire of sin is essentially a fever. It's a sign that we are actually trying to fight off the infection. That's all sin is. Sin is nothing more than us trying to satisfy a need unrighteously. And that fever that trying to satisfy that need in some kind of unrighteous way, it's a sign that we are actually trying to fight off the infection of sin. But the fire of God, the fire of God's judgment, his purifying and perfecting love, it kills the disease. That kind of fire breaks the fever and sets us free. The unfortunate reality for you and for me is that all of this work takes time. It's the work of realizing that both fire and water are just part of life. That life and death are part of the human experience. Even when we choose the other thing, we're still gonna end up in the other. But it's work that we can submit to trusting in the goodness of God. 
that no matter if our hearts choose fire or water, we will be found in the heart of God. And this is work that we submit to, but it belongs to the Spirit. Of course, the Spirit's work in our life, it convicts us. That's how most of us experience the fire of God as conviction. But the Spirit's convicting is not for condemning, it is for conversion. And the Spirit could convert us just in a moment, rooting out our anger, lopping off our lust, cracking open our stony hearts, and sometimes, to some people, this does happen. But for most of us, we have to submit ourselves to the slow, steady work of the Spirit. Bauerschmidt again says, the Spirit works within our hearts like water dripping on stone slowly wearing it away bit by bit, smoothing out its roughness over time. Our anger slowly abates. Our lust gradually lessens. We grow in compassion and mercy towards others as we experience God's compassion and mercy shown to us. I set before you life and death, fire and water. And the good news for you and for me is that no matter what we choose, we are choosing Christ's own life. Even if we choose death, it will lead to Jesus' death that is really life. You are, hear this, you are inescapably bound up in the life and the love of Christ. And every week we come to this table and we receive this bread and this cup and we remember it is the cup that is mingled with fire and water, the fire of the spirit and the water of Christ's own flesh. This bread is mingled with fire and water, the water that gave growth and the fire that makes it rise. So it is the thought that counts. What matters in the end is not what you do, but what is in your heart. And thanks be to God that what is in our hearts is the mercy of God. Because the fire and the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that our hearts might become like Christ's heart. And so we might live as Christ lived his life. And in the end, whatever the state of our hearts, remember we are the heart of God's heart. We are the apple of God's eye.